Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word. We ask you to guide and lead and show us what you would have us to see from this section of the scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 30, starting at verse 1. And this is when David and his men, remember, they've just been kicked out of the army for, of Achish that was going to go fight Israel. And we remember David was kind of complaining and, and protesting about this. And they were sent home. 29. Or 30. 30, excuse me. Verse 1, and it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziglag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the, the south and Ziglag had, and smitten Ziglag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives and they were, that were therein and they slew not any, neither great nor small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. And David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captive, Ahinadab the Jezreelite, and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters, but David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. I'm going to stop there because a good bit there to even start with. Uh, it starts out with, and it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziglag on the third day. Uh, the third day seems to be very prevalent in the Bible. Things a lot of times happened in threes, and I think it's all, I really do think it's a, a uh, pre precursor of Jesus going to the cross and dying because in this particular case, it three really fits because David and his men were theoretically killed. They, you know, they weren't allowed to go to battle. They, they're coming in depressed, and they come to their town, which has bad news instead of good news for them. But, and it took them three days to get from Afak, where they were starting, back to Ziglag. That's about 50 miles trip, which is about the time it would take a horse on a slow walk or a reasonable walk, a long-term walk. Because you can, you can push a horse for 30 or 40 miles if you really were in a hurry, but you couldn't do it day in, day out. I mean, if you pushed your horse that hard, that horse would have to be resting for a couple of days to get back in. The average distance for a horse was, again, 15 to 20, 25 miles max. And so they weren't in any hurry to get back to Ziglag. They thought everything was okay. So they, they would start out, move, go for about 20 miles, and go to, go to, go to sleep and camp, and, and they figured that everything was okay. So it took them about three days to get back to Ziglag. And when they got there, they found out that the Amalekites had attacked Ziglag. Now, the Amalekites were better than David. David, remember, when he attacked the Ziglag, uh, the Amalekites' uh, towns, he killed everybody so that nobody would tell who attacked them. The Amalekites go in and they just burned the city to the ground, you know, burned the city to the ground and took everybody captive. Um, so we see this big problem coming in. And I kind of wonder if maybe the Amalekites weren't kind of figuring out, okay, who's one day away from us? You know, we've had all these cities and they built this kind of ark because they attacked southern, southern uh, um, 
Israel, they attacked Ziglag, and they attacked the southern part of the Philistines. So I think they might have been saying, okay, we've been getting beat up pretty bad over here. Who's within, who's within one day of our, you know, that's my speculation, but I, I, it makes sense to me that they might have done something like that and say, well, we're going to go back and you know, get our stuff. And I'm wondering, because we're going to find out, Ziglag seems to be the only city they burnt to the ground. And I'm not sure why Ziglag was burnt to the ground. And I will give you what I kind of suspect, because remember what I told you a couple weeks ago when David kept taking the clothing from these Amalekites? I believe that they found their clothing in Ziglag and decided to pay back David and his, and his people. Uh, that's my speculation. Uh, but I kind of think that that's what happened there. There was a payback coming in. And, uh, but David and his men get there, and they find that all the women were taken captive, and they hadn't slew any, and they keep bringing this up. Nobody was killed. This is God's mercy on David and his, and his men to not have their women and children killed. But David always killed everybody, and I think that would probably be, which is also why they wouldn't have killed everybody that wanted to re, repopulate their slave base, and, and, their, and their, especially with the women, uh, would be made into wives, if they, especially any virgins, uh, would have been made into wives on these captive, captive uh, taking. And uh, they carried them away. Now, it doesn't tell us how... Recent, we don't know if this attack happened while David was up there with Achish or on his way back. All we know is that by the time they get there, they find their city has been demolished. And it says in verse 3, So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their children had been taken captives. Then verse 4, David and his people that were with him lifted up their voices and wept until there was no more power to weep. This seems to be a very common event in the Old Testament especially. When something, somebody's killed, there's a lot of weeping that goes on. And from what I understand, the Middle Easterners are very expressive people. They, they will cry. They, will, they, they laugh easily and they cry easily. <laughs> And we see this all through the scripture, that whole, uh, um, yeah, Asia, um, Arabian area peninsula has that, that very emotional component to it in the scriptures. And it says they wept. Now, it doesn't, I don't know how long it took them to weep themselves to, to, to tired. They were already tired. They had, remember, they had just traveled three days from, from Achish. And it would have taken them three days to get there. So they've been gone at least a week. We know they spent a night with Achish, at least one. So they've been gone seven days from their camp. And they're going to be a little tired. They're, they've been on the move for most of that seven days. Uh, so they're probably going to be exhausted pretty quick. And then it just makes a comment, David lost both his wives. <laughs> Now, I really don't know why that comment's in there, except maybe to remind us you know, that his wives were with him because they, they were with him a couple, couple chapters back. So I don't know why we would have expected them to not be taken. Uh, but David's lost his family as well as his 600 men. Uh, have, everybody has lost their, their uh, families. And it renames his two wives. 
And in verse 6, David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of the people were grieved, every man for his sons and as for his daughters, and David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. This, I think, is so important. This sentence I want to stop on for just a few minutes. The people were totally discouraged. They had no hope. They had no strength to fall back on. And remember, the people that David has gathered together you know, are the low-level <laughs> people. All right? They're the people that owed money. They were running from the government. You know, they, were, they were all of these things. They are not great followers of God. And when grief hit them, they went into despair. And what happens when the world especially goes into despair? They have to blame someone, always. And this is what happens over and over again. It's always somebody else's fault. You know, if you can remember when you're saved, it was always somebody else's fault. And sometimes Christians do the same thing, but that is not what we're supposed to do as a Christian. Okay, and Christians do have a strength to fall back on. We fall back on God. We fall back on the fact that he's sovereign. We fall back on the fact that all things work together for good. We have the hands of God to fall into, so we should not have this dis despair. It doesn't mean we're not going to get sad or question or try to understand, you know, why, but we don't end up in despair like these guys do. So these guys get into despair. And you can almost hear the comments coming from them. David, you know, this is, this is what we get for going and attacking them. They, they come back and attack us. David, if you hadn't gone up there to fight with Achish, we would have been here to defend our, defend our families. You know, you can hear the accusations that they're coming. David, it's all your fault. You know, you didn't have to take all of us with this. You could have left some of us here too. You know, and these would be the kind of comments that are going on. And they're going, well, maybe we're just going to stone David. It's all David's fault, and you know, we're just, we'll just get rid of him. And yet, when I read this, I'm going, how typical. How typical, especially of worldly people. It's, it's somebody else's fault. Over and over again. It's, you know, it's, it's not my fault I was drinking. It's just the servant's stress. I just had to go get my drink. You know, uh, it wasn't my fault that I fell in. That person just looked so good that I couldn't help myself. You know, and we will make all kinds of excuses, all kinds of reasons for doing it. But the key here that says, David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. He goes in and says, okay, God, don't know. <laughs> but God, I know you can do something. <laughs> and he encourages him, how he strengthens himself. And this is what we can do as Christians. We can go to God and say, God, I don't understand any of this. But I know you're in charge. I know that you're, all things work together for good. And we encourage ourselves in God and his plan. And that sets us apart as Christians. And when we can get really good at that, encouraging ourselves in God, the world notices. The world looks at us and saying, wow, how, you know, you're, you're responding differently. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't respond that way. I'd, I'd be... I'd be uh, going out of my mind. I'd be lost. I'd be, you know, somebody else is having to be a problem. I just can't understand this. And what, is, what does the world call any bad storm that we get? An act of God, right? You know, if you read your insurance policies real close, they always exclude acts of God. Okay? So if your house is destroyed by 
by an earthquake or, or lightning or whatever it is, they, or, or, or a tornado or anything, they usually have a clause in there saying this is an act of God, it's not covered. Yeah. So it's kind of an amazing thing. They, they cover just about nothing on these insurance claims because they have these little, wow. little clauses that say, well, if it's an act of God, we don't cover it. Yeah. But David is encouraging himself in the Lord. And I can almost picture David's going, God, they're ready to kill me. I don't understand. You know, help me. Give me, give, me, give me some help here. And David's a little worried because he's got you know, 600 men that are talking about stoning him. Uh, David's a pretty good soldier, but I don't think he can fight off 600 men. Especially the men he's got who seem to be able to win battles. And I just love this idea. David encourages himself. And, I, and I, that one struck me. How often do we encourage ourselves when, when troubles are going, going, coming our way? Hopefully, we do it fairly quickly. Because I keep teaching us, you know, that all things work together for good and that God is in charge. And the more we truly believe that, we can encourage ourselves in God. God, you're good. You've got a plan. And David's probably ready to encourage himself because God has just rescued him from going to battle with, against Israel. Okay? Remember, we talked about that three days earlier. He was supposed to go to war against Israel. And we don't understand that. You know, that was God's mercy. He was setting himself up with Achish to be one of his chief, you know. Born. And remember, Achish wanted to put him in the bodyguard of him, his, his bodyguard, not just, not just a soldier, but in the bodyguard so that the Israel did break through the line. David would have been expected to protect the king, the wrong king. He was to protect the world's king and not, not the righteous king. And... David was kicked out. So he's probably feeling somewhat relieved. He's seen God deliver him. He's seen God deliver him from Saul's hand over and over again. And now he's at a place where his own men are wanting to kill him. That's probably the hardest place to be at is when somebody that is family, whether it's physical family or spiritual family, is out to get you for whatever reason. You know, you, you've offended them and they're out to probably not literally stone us, but you might, you might want them to. It would be a lot easier in some cases. Uh, why don't you just kill me and get it over with? This, this long-term criticism and, and backbiting and stabbing in the back is, is a lot more painful than, than actually getting rid of me. And we see this over and over. When people get hurt, the human nature says, strike out at somebody. Somebody, Whether they deserve it or not is totally irrelevant. And we, we look back at Adam and Eve, you know, and, and uh, how they did the same thing. You know, this, this is not new. What we're seeing here is not a new thing. It started right from the very first parents of the whole world. And remember we said that when God asked Adam, you know, he pointed to both God and, and, and Eve and said, God, uh, the woman you gave me, so God, it's your fault because if you hadn't given to her, me, I wouldn't have fallen, but it's really her fault too. She, she tempted me. Yeah. Uh, pointing our finger and blaming other people is common for us. And this is why we as Christians have to understand we are to take responsibility for our own actions. Why? Because it's sin. <laughs> 
If we've done something that is going to cause problems, we need to say, God, I am sorry I have sinned. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And confess, we've talked about that. That word confess in Greek is homologeo, to say the same thing as. I've heard people go, well, you know, bad things have happening, but. And they'll give some excuse for it. That's not saying the same thing. That's not confession of sin. Confession of sin is a real simple, God, I really messed up. I am sorry. All right. That's what David finally did after a year, after, after he had his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and Uriah. He finally confessed and said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned, God. He finally understood and he was ready to accept and not blame because you know, originally he was probably going, well, you know, if Bathsheba hadn't been taking that bath on, this, on the roof, uh, you know, everything would have been okay. Well, David, if you had been where you were supposed to have been out at the battle, you wouldn't have been where, watching her in the first place. Okay? But we tend to make all these excuses over and over. You know, God, I, it was wrong, but, you know, I just got tempted beyond what I could survive. <laughs> you know, and tell God he's a liar because he says he won't tempt us above the, <laughs> you know. But, but God, you know, that person just, oh, man, that, that person just led me down the wrong path. Uh-huh. You, you still followed. You still didn't hold on to my truth. David is encouraging himself in the Lord and saying, God, I don't, help me. Help me. And we look at this, and I just love this idea. Are we encouraging ourselves? Are we looking at the scripture when we get into hard times? And, you know, I have my scriptures. You might, you might have different scriptures, and that's great. Whatever scriptures you grab onto when you're having a hard time is between you and God. Each person is going to have their own, their own little thing that they say, this is, this is my thing. You know, and I've told you, Romans 8.28 is mine, you know, because it, it is so strong when things, bad things happen or seem to happen that I just grab hold of that and say, God, I... You've promised. And God, you're sovereign. And so nothing happens without your say. And I don't understand how it's going to be for good, but you've promised. And grab hold of it. That's where David's at right now. He's grabbed hold of whatever promise it is that he's looking at from God. He's grabbed hold of it, and he's encouraging himself with God. And it could be just simply all the th good things that God has done for him for these 19 years or so, the 20 years, whatever it is, he's going to start reigning at 39, and he was a young teenager when it started, so you can figure out, you know, David had somewhere between uh, 19 years to, you know, probably closer to uh, a little over 19 years of running from Saul. That's a long time to be running from Saul. Okay, so if he was, you know, starting at reigning at 19, at 39, and even if he was 20 years old, which I think he was much younger, that's 19 years. You know, and it was probably closer to 39 years that he's running from Saul. Or, uh, math, yeah, anyway. Uh, a long time he's been running from Saul. Okay, uh, closer to 30, somewhere between 30 and 19 years. I knew I was not too high, so. <laughs> so. But he's been running from Saul for a long time, and he's learned to trust God during all that point in time. And our trials are what help us to get stronger. When God 
gives us trials. He's given us those trials so that we can lean on him more and trust him more. And this is the thing about it. If we think through our own lives, it's the hard times that we look back on and say, this made me strong enough to be able to go through something else. If you always had everything go your way and you never had a single problem in your entire life and nobody's ever lived that way, but let's say you did, what would happen on the first trial that you end up having? One of the things that bothers me about our young people growing up today, okay, they play sports and everybody gets a certificate and nobody gets to be the most valuable player anyway anymore. In a lot of leagues, they don't even keep score. They just play the game. Now, I can guarantee you the kids keep score. And the coaches keep score, but they're not supposed to keep score because you can't have any losers. All right? And that's what our kids are being raised up in an environment that nobody loses. Everybody's all equal and everybody's good. Whether you can play the game or not doesn't matter. And then they hit the workforce where all of a sudden a boss tells them, you're not very good. You don't have a job anymore. The first time this young person, 18, 19, 20 years old, hears that they're not good enough is when they're an adult without mom and dad around. Not a very wise thing. It's not good for our kids. Not good for our young adults. And we wonder why we have so many people that have trouble. Because all of a sudden, they're going to find, there is going to be somebody in their life that finally tells them, oh, well, I don't care how good you think you are but you're really not that good. And they might not be that blunt about it, but it'll come across. Well, I've always been, you know, I got to play half the game at least because that was the rule. Everybody had to play half the game. And I understand that if, you, if you've got your kid playing, you want them to play. You know, and, but then you give everybody an equal award. Everybody's equal. Always, always equal. And then all of a sudden they find out, oh, you're not so equal. And we've got all kinds of issues coming up. You know, this whole idea that the government owes me a, uh, an income. You know, that's the big thing coming up is everybody's going to get an income. Everybody deserves a college education. Everybody deserves to have medical insurance. You know, this is going to be very interesting. How, number one, how do you pay for it? Number two, if everybody has a college education, a college education is worthless. It really is. If everybody has something, then it's worthless. Uh, and this is what we're training up our people in our country to just be part of a group of pack of sheep that are just like everybody else. And David encouraged himself in God, and God tested him. You know, we're watching everybody be made weak and, and, and inefficient, and God says, I, I want you strong. I want you strong. This When bad things happen, you stand out. And this is what happens when, us, when we encourage ourselves in God. We stand out in a crowd. People look at it and say, wow, you just totally wrecked your, your vehicle and you're, you're not totally broken up by it. Your house just blew up and you're not, you're not, uh, you're not upset by it. You know, your kids died and you're not totally devastated by it. I'd be, you know, those things happen to me. I'd be, I'd be at the bar and, and not coming out for a month. You know, uh, I'd be on the drug so heavy I wouldn't be able to think for a month. And they look at us and say, how are you doing? And we get to say, we're encouraging ourselves in the Lord. 
He's my strength. He's my honor. Now, does that mean we're not going to be disappointed? No, we're going to be disappointed. It, you know, it's human nature. It's not what the Spirit's nature is, but it is human nature. And hopefully we get to where we grow fast enough that we en encourage ourselves in the Lord so it's okay quickly. To be, okay to be disappointed? It's human nature. It's, okay to be it's human nature. I'm not going to say it's okay, because like this is what I said. The human nature is to be disappointed and upset. The spirit nature is I'm encouraging myself on God and being okay. We are human beings. You know, we, we have a battle in our, in our being between the spirit and the flesh. Ideally, we should walk in the spirit and be able to walk through the trials and encourage ourselves in God and be strong. Am I going to judge somebody who gets all broken up because these things happened? No. I'm going to encourage them to be encouraged in God and get out of that cycle. Because when you are discouraged, you're in a very dangerous place because you're either going to encourage yourself in God or you're going to engage in whatever it is that you used to do to escape your problems. And that'll be different for each person. It could be alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, work, family, sports, exercise. I mean, taken to an extreme. Run away. You know, well, run away from the problems. Hide from them, you know, is what the, what the flesh wants to do. And that'll be in whatever activity keeps them from thinking about it. And that's not the right place to be. So is it okay to be discouraged? No, because that's the flesh's answer. Is it natural and will it happen? Absolutely. <laughs> Our goal, though, is to get ourselves encouraged in the Lord as quick as possible. Because, you know, we are a new creation. We're supposed to walk in the Spirit. And I'm, I'm guilty of it. I've, I've fallen down and been discouraged on occasions, too. So it's, like I say, is it right? No. It's, it's the fleshly thing to do. But we are human beings, and we struggle with the, the flesh and everything, and we're going to have those problems. And the flesh sometimes wins. <laughs> if we're not totally saturated with God. And the, you know, in all these biographies I have us reading and looking over, we look at our, our heroes in the biographies and many times they get caught up in that flesh's answer and then they finally repent and turn to God and, and, and grow from it. And we're not gonna be any different. All through the scripture we see our, our heroes fall in the flesh. Abraham and Sarah going down to Egypt. Now, Sarah, you're so beautiful, and I don't want to die, so you tell him you're my sister and not my, not my wife. Really dumb thing to do, but he was not encouraging himself in God. And he didn't do it just once. He did it twice. <laughs> okay. He did it in Egypt and with the Amalekites. <laughs> and both times he was afraid that he was going to die, and he said, okay, well, you know, it worked out last time, we'll just... <laughs> We'll follow the same plan. And God was merciful to him both times. But you know, we see those things. We see Peter, when Jesus is ready to be crucified, not encouraging himself in what God had told him 13 times in the, recorded in the, in the New Testament that he was going to die and raise again. And Peter totally gets depressed and denies he knows Jesus. And then he decides he's going to totally walk away because obviously he can't follow Jesus anymore because even if Jesus did come back, how could Jesus forgive him? So he goes to go fishing. 
He decides to go back to be a fisherman. And Jesus had to go seek him to encourage him in the Lord. And when he came back, he came back with great passion. And that is one thing that happens when we do encourage ourselves in the Lord. We start understanding his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. And that gives us a great boldness then to share with other people because if we can get it, others can get it. And that's the great thing when we encourage ourselves in God in the first place. We look and say, God, you, you were gracious. You were merciful to all these other people. You'll be merciful to me. And that is where our strength ultimately comes from. The mercy and grace and forgiveness of Jesus. And that should teach us to be merciful, graceful, forgiving to other people. Uh, again, because if God can give us that, there's others that deserve it because we know ourselves and we know that we don't deserve it. And whether they deserve it or not becomes irrelevant because we want to give grace. And this is the most, I have actually had people tell me, well, they don't deserve grace. And the answer is real simple to that. Nobody deserves grace. If you deserved grace, it wouldn't be grace. All right? Grace is given to the undeserving because grace is getting what you don't deserve. Thank God for grace. Huh? Thank God for for his grace because all of us deserve hell. And we get heaven when we accept Jesus Christ. The wonderful grace. We just need to be able to learn to give grace to other people. Because God gives us grace, we should be willing to give grace to others. Not judging them by what we see or what we think we see. Not judging them by what we we see them do. But just to give grace. And if we as Christians gave more grace to people, we would see more changed lives out of showing grace. When we look at somebody and we go, well, you know, that person's really bad. I don't want to have anything to do with them. That's the person we should be gravitating to and saying, you know, I, I have a wonderful news. God loves you. you know, that is some powerful statement you know, to tell somebody, God loves you. And to be able to share your own testimony with people. You know, a lot of people go, well, I don't know what to say to people about, about Jesus. Tell them what he's done for you. Okay? The one thing about telling them what, you, what he's done for you is nobody can tell you it didn't happen. You know, well, you know, I don't think Jesus took you out of the pit of d- despair. Well, you, you're, you, I was there. I was there. I don't care what you think. I was there, and that's what happened. Okay? When you're telling them what you have gone through, they may, may, they may choose not to believe it. That's between them, but they cannot convince you that it didn't happen. If it really happened, it happened. Your testimony is powerful. When you tell somebody, I got saved and I changed from an angry, harsh person that fought all the time to somebody who learned to love, they can't argue with that. There's a lot of people who don't believe that was me, but that was me. Long, long time ago. (laughs) But that was me. And they go, well, that's not, I can't even picture you. That's because you know me now and not then. You know me as God has made me now. And I've used that as part of my testimony at times. You know, to tell people, God has made me something totally different. If I hadn't gotten saved, I'd have been in prison. I know I would have been. I'd have killed somebody. 
<laughs> I wouldn't be working with the prison. I'd be in it. Uh, I'd have killed somebody. I know that's what my temper would have done. Uh, yeah, well, everybody who knows me now doesn't think I ever would have had a temper, you know, but I had a temper back in, when I was a young child. The calculating temper, yes. I, it was very, very vicious, very cruel. And God saved me and changed me completely. And it's taken, you know, there was a big change right off the bat, but it's taken, cha- taken time to get more and more of it out. But each one of us should have some kind of story where God has changed you in a, such a dramatic way that you can share with people, God did this for me. You know, he's changed the way I think. For most of us in this room, I know because you've told me the stories, that God has changed the way you think about things. Do you realize what a testimony that is for people? That God can change the way you think. He restores our mind. He gives us a new way of thinking that is spiritual, which is different from the world's way of thinking. But the value of that and the testimony that that brings when you share that with people now, they might not believe you, and that's fine. That doesn't matter. You share what God has done for you. But you know, the good news about this is it may not seem to impact them when you first tell them, but later on, they'll, they'll be thinking about it. I wonder if what they said was true. Could God really change me? And they might just come to Christ from you just sharing what, how God has changed you. Doesn't have to be anything else. You know, look what look at the changes God made in the scriptures. We look at somebody like Jacob. Jacob, a master manipulator and and con artist. And God gets hold of him. And he becomes a loving individual who gets to be the founder of the Jewish nation with his twelve children, or twelve boys, thirteen children. You know. What a, what, a, what, a, what a difference was made in his life. You look at a Moses, proud, arrogant man who's been trained to be king, ends up being a murderer, goes and hides, and God gets hold of him. And then remember at one point he said, God, if, if you would just save this nation and take them into your presence, I'd be willing to go to hell. That's not the man who started out before God changed him. Now, he still had a temper. Now, he had a temper through the rest of his life. But God made him a more humble man. You know, what has God done to you? How has he changed you? Use that, use that in your testimony to other people about what God can do. You know, how has God changed you? How is he motivating you? How is he now active in your life? Giving a testimony... You know, we as Christians try to make this idea of testimony being this big spiritual thing. Testimony in the Bible is literally what it is, to go to court and testify about what you know. The only problem is our court is every day with people testifying about what we know about God. Don't try to make it this big, long, hard thing. Just share what you know. Well, you know, if you'd have known me 30 years ago, uh, yeah, you wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere near me because this is what I was before God, but this is who God has made me to be. David is encouraging himself before God. Verse 7, And David said to Abinathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray you, bring me hither the ephod 
And Abathar brought there the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and his 600 men that were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those that were left behind stayed. But David pursued the 400 men, and 200 abode beyond, behind, which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Besor. All right. David's encouraging himself with the Lord, and the first thing he does is we would say pray, you know, but he inquires of God. Now, he does it through their, through their system. He gets the priest and the ephod and said, okay, you go talk to God. Tell me what God's answer is. And we say this so many times, you know, most people will go, I've tried everything else, let me pray. David tends to be, I need God, I'm going to pray. It tends to be. We have a few incidents where he doesn't do this, but he's come back because this is the first time we've seen him pray for quite a while. You know, he's been walking in his own, own strength for quite a while up to this, which got him into trouble with almost having to go to war against Israel. He's walked in his own flesh. Now he's, he's come, he's encouraging himself with God. He's kind of reviving himself. He's realizing, okay, I've been doing things my way. Let me get back to God. And he inquires of God, what should I do? Should I pursue these people? And, he, and I love it because it says, you know, he says, shall I overtake him? And the answer says, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. Now this is a good promise. David's been told he's going to overtake these guys and we don't know how, at this point in the story, we don't know how big a lead they have. We're going to find out later on they had a three-day lead. Okay, Three-day lead at least to get away from. So David's got to make up three days travel to catch these guys. And he's going to do it fairly quick because he's in a hurry. And he's not dragging a baggage car. He's not driving, dragging a whole bunch of animals because now the people who have left, they've taken all the animals. They've taken all the captives. They are not getting the 15, 20 miles a day. Okay. They're going to get 5 to 10 miles a day because the animals can't be driven that hard if you want them to live. And the captives are not going to go totally peacefully. Okay, so they're going to drag down the speed. They're only going to get about 10 miles a day. So David and his men at hard pushing of their horses are going to be able to catch up to them. You know, because now they're a little angry. They're going, to, they're going to push their animals. And remember, their animals, though, are already tired. They just got done with a three-day, 50-mile trip. And they're getting ready now to chase an enemy. And God says, you're going to overtake them and you're going to recover all. This is a promise God makes to us so often. We'll talk about the, the Brook of Basor in just a moment. <laughs> it's actually on that map. Uh, God promises us victory. Maybe not in this world completely, but we also get victory in this world. We have a verse in, in Jeremiah that says that God will restore the years that the canker worms have eaten and, and then the, the locusts and everything else goes down this whole long list. 
Uh, God restores what we waste. Only God can do it. And it's so great when you, you say, God, I have really messed up my life. I cannot fix this. And God says, you're right, you can't, but I can. And God recreates your life. He doesn't take the broken boards and patch them together with nails and glue and everything. He doesn't, he just gives you a brand new life that's not broken. People have said, well, how do I get over, you know, uh, the bad things? And there's a big move, and I, and I very much agree with it, the idea that people who have been sexually active, that can all of a sudden when they come to Christ say, okay, stop everything and God will give you a, your, reheal your soul and your body to make it not necessarily a physical virgin, but to say your mind and your soul will be treated as, as if it was virgin. You know, because you've made these mistakes, but I have redeemed, I have corrected. Does that mean there won't be any consequences for those sins? No, there'll be some consequences, but God can redeem. For us as parents, when we look at all the mistakes that we made with our kids, God can redeem those and bring our children into relationship with him and fix the issues. You know, our psychological world says, you know, hey kids, just blame your parents for everything. It's all their fault and you've got your blame. Psychology is all built in the world's way of thinking, blame. Blame somebody else. Find out why you're doing it and then blame them and try to move past it. Where God says, just move past it, confess it, admit what you've done and move forward. And here, David and his men were told, you're going to catch them, you're going to pursue them. And then verse 9, so David and his 600 men started going and they got to the brook of Besor. And Besor on your map is this, that long river that is running to the south of Zigzag. It runs all the way to the Mediterranean and all the way up through there. How far Besor was depends on what part you go to. <laughs> Most of the scholars believe that they went straight south, which puts it at roughly 15 to 20 miles away. All right, so David and his men have traveled 20 miles hard travel. Okay, they're pushing their animals right now. They, they're motivated. They are motivated to move and they're pushing. They want to catch up with these guys. God said they're going to overtake them. They're going to overtake them. And they get to the, to the brook of Besor. And 200 of the guys say, we can't go any further. And this kind of makes sense. They just pushed their animals real hard. They had three days of travel before that. They have spent the morning or, or the afternoon, wherever it might be, weeping themselves and emotional wearing themselves out emotionally for the loss of their families. Uh, and all of a sudden they go to David, yeah, David, we just can't. Have to be the single dad. Huh? Have to be the single dad. <laughs> well, no, it's going to tell us that some of them had wives and kids. Uh, but there is a point where your body just gives up and says, I can't do anymore. Okay. And some of the guys were weak. These are not David has built them into a fighting force, but these guys aren't soldiers. Okay? These are the thieves and robbers and guys who couldn't pay their taxes or their, or their loans and ran, you know, were running for their life. You know, these are not hardened soldiers that are used to doing all of this. And they've had four days of marching. 
and one day of hard march. And 200 of them just say, we can't handle going any further. Well, they're carrying, food, they're carrying weapons, they're carrying food. There's probably at least one baggage car with us because these, you know, we think of these armies moving and moving quickly, but there's always somebody following after an army with the stuff to keep them moving. You know, the camp, the food, the water, the, the supplies, all this stuff. There's always somebody else in the army behind the scenes. Uh, and David is going to set up something where he's going to set, set a stage that is going to go forward for a long time for all of the rest of history is going to be recorded here. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. Probably not tonight. <laughs> uh, so 200 men are left behind. They just cannot go any further. And if you've ever been to a place where you've just been ex totally exhausted, it's one thing to push through the pain and when, when you're a runner, you, you push through the pain and you get your second wind, you get the adrenaline rushing. But there is a point even for that runner that can't push forward anymore. When you're playing sports, there's that point where you just, okay, uh, I've gone way too far. <laughs> I cannot go any further. Uh, I played football and sometimes I played both ways and there would be, by the end of the game, there was times when I just couldn't go any further. I've just had it, I can't. <laughs> You know, it's been a hard game. I can't go any further. Uh, you play soccer, you get that same thing, if you're, especially if you're a midfielder. Midfielders run all day long in, a, in the game. And you get toward the end of the game, and those per, the, that, that player is just tired and can't, can't, go any, you know, can't go any further. That's where his men are. They have pushed, and they just they cannot go any further, even to rescue their, their families. They're just so tired. And we're going to find out that they were left to guard the stuff. Okay? And David's going to reward them for guarding the stuff. Um, and they're, and they're, so they get left behind. And David continues with 400 men. Now, he already had a very small group, and now he's one-third short. <laughs> uh, and still going to pursue. Verse 11. And they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he did eat and they made him drink water and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirits came again to him for he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water three days and three nights. And David said unto him, to whom belong you and where, where are you? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to the Amalekite. And my master left me because three days ago I fell sick. And he made an invasion upon the south of the Sherozites and upon the coast which belongs to Judah and upon the south of Caleb. And we burned Ziglag with fire. And David said unto him, Can you bring me down to this company? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down. Okay. So they just happened in all this wilderness <laughs> to find a man, an Egyptian. Now, the world would tell you it was coincidence. Well, I don't believe in coincidence. God ordained it, and they found an Egyptian who just happened to be the slave of one of the Amalekites that raided David's city. And they found this man, and they gave him some food, 
it says bread, but it literally means food, and he ate, and, he gave, and they gave him some water. They said, and what did specifically did they give him? They gave him a, a piece of a cake of figs. A cake of figs is figs that have been pressed and compressed to make them easy to carry, uh, and they turn them into, you know, when you press them down, they, they stick together, and they probably had something that they helped to gel them a little bit. They gave him a piece of that, and they gave him two clusters of, of raisins, and when he had eaten and had some water, he, his spirit was revived. He hasn't eaten for three days and three nights. So how long has it been since Zigleg has been attacked? Three days and three nights at least. That's the head start that they, that they got. At least because he's been left behind, behind with them. And David asked him the question, well, who are you? What are you doing out here alone? Kind of, kind of the questions you would ask, you know, uh, you're out here in the middle of nowhere, you don't have any food, you don't have any water. Who are you and why are you out here? Okay, uh, and he tells him, you know, I am, I'm part of the Amalekites and I was left behind because I got sick. And we've talked about this at several times. Our world today is starting to care less and less for sick people as a whole, which is exactly what used to happen. And here's a great example of it. He got sick. So they left him behind. Instead of putting him on a, on a camel or, you know, until he could be healed, they go, okay, you're not, you're not worth anything. You're just going to be left behind. Die. Okay. Matter of fact, we're not even leaving any food with you because you're not worth anything because you're sick and you, if you're going to die, you're going to die. And, you know, we hear that going on in our day and age. People have that same attitude toward the sick, toward the poor, you know, the poor, toward those who don't. Preborns, murder, murder the children because they'll be in our way. Oh, the, the seniors, they're, they're draining their assets. Just kill them. It's merciful. They're getting old, getting more disease, getting more worthless. And besides which, they're using up all of our inheritance. We don't want them to live any longer anyway. Exactly what was going on here. All right? It's not new. What we're experiencing in our world is not new. And this man was left behind to die. Huh? Sick? Yeah. Just leave him. Just leave him. You know, if he lives, good, you know, be God's mercy. But if he dies, eh, it was just going to be a drain on our resources anyway. It was going to slow us down. Just leave him. And he goes, I, I got sick, so they left me behind. And then he goes, well, you know, we made an invasion on the south and upon the coast that belongs to Judah and, on, and upon the south of Caleb, and we burned Ziglag with fire. This is the only city he names. Now, does he know that David's city is Ziglag? I don't think so, because I don't think he would have said that if he had known David's city was Ziglag. Oh, by the way, uh, you're my rescuers, but we burnt your city. Uh, I think that if he had known that David was, was uh, from Ziglag, he would not have said it. Because that would have been, oh, <laughs> uh, my, my rescuers, we burnt their city. I'm in trouble if I mention this. David now has his confirmation, though, he's following the right band of people. Now, I'm following the right group. These are the guys that destroyed my city. All right? I've been on the right trail. I'm on the right trail. And David asks him a very interesting question. He says, can you direct me to this company? 
I wonder how the Egyptian knew where the company had gone to. He's been gone for three days. He's probably going to take them to their home. I guess they made it all the way home because that's the only way the Egyptian would know how to get to where they're going. Uh, can you show me? Can you tell me where they, where they live? Can you guide me? And the Egyptian says, absolutely as long as, and he puts a condition on this, as long as you don't kill me yourself, because I'm helping you, don't kill me, and or, and or <laughs> don't give me back to my master. Now that kind of makes sense. You know, he's, he's concerned that David might kill him. You know, this, he probably suspects that David's from one of the towns that they have just <laughs> destroyed. Probably doesn't realize, you know, areas that have been, been raided. Probably doesn't think he's from Ziglag, because otherwise I said, he, I don't think he would have said anything if, he, if he'd have thought that. Because David's going to have a Hebrew accent. He's going to be, you know, so he's going to think that he's from one of the southern, southern areas that they raided. Okay, this is a Hebrew chasing after me. This is one of the Israelites chasing after me. He's not going to be thinking Ziglag, which is Philistine, Philistine country. So he's probably going, okay, I'm, I'm safe because this, he's, not, he's not from Ziglag. He, yeah, he's, he's from one of those places we took all our stuff, but he's not. Yeah, he, yeah, he's not. And then he says, okay, I just want, I'll show you where he is, you know, but don't kill me. But also don't turn me back over to him. Because he knew that if he guided David to him, the very next thing, his life was forfeit if he went back to his former master. But he's asking for a lot since he's got Yeah, he's asking for his life. <laughs> You know, which makes sense. You know, he's going to die. I mean, in one sense, though, it, may, it doesn't make sense because you know, he's saying, don't give me the, you know, I want you to spare my life, but if you're not going to guarantee me, I'm not going to tell you. He's going to die anyway if he doesn't tell him. Uh, so he's in a kind of a catch-22. He should just tell him, but he, he's, he's making a deal. How often does the world try to make deals with God or the godly? God, if you just do this, I'll do whatever you want. And no, no intention of following through. We see in the churches frequently people go, well, you know, I need help paying my bills because I just can't, you know, I wasted my money on drugs and alcohol and now I want to, can't pay my bill. The world constantly tries to make deals. This man is making a deal. Like you said, nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. He's, he's making a deal, like we said, that has no, he, he has no bearing to get it anyway. If he doesn't tell David what he, what he wants, he's probably going to die. If he tells David what he wants, he could die. He's just trying to bargain for his life. And David gives it to him. You know, David's attitude is, what's one man compared to the entire company and getting back what I want? And David, though, is also representing God, and God is merciful. And this is what we are supposed to do as Christians. Are we merciful to those that deserve punishment? You know, they've hurt us. They've hurt our family. Are we, or do we show mercy or do we want revenge? And God says over and over, vengeance is mine. I will repay. It is much better to let God give the vengeance. Because number one, we're always going to get it wrong. We're going to give too much. We're going to give too little. We're going to get ourselves in trouble by giving, <laughs> giving our vengeance. But if you just show mercy and let God take the vengeance. 
Now, I have watched people have God's vengeance on them, and it has scared me at times when I've seen what God has done to them, because it would not have been what I would have done. I would have been on the too little side. <laughs> and I've watched what God has done, how he works on getting people to turn to him. Because remember, when, even when God is punishing somebody, his purpose is not to hurt them. God's purpose in punishment is to draw them to him. And that's what it is all about. All of the book of Revelation that is so vicious and violent that two-thirds of the population of the world dies is for God saying, I want you to turn to me. Turn to me. Now, human response usually is when things get bad, we accuse God and we attack God, but God is saying, there will be some that will turn. They'll recognize that what I'm trying to do is draw them to me. When God disciplines, it is all designed to get somebody to turn to him. Doesn't feel like it in the middle of it. When God disciplines us to try to get us into repentance and confession, it doesn't feel like he's being nice to us. Uh, but, you know, I really kind of think God has the same opinion. You know, my dad always said to me this, you know, when it was time for a spanking, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I told my kids the same thing because it really hurt me more than it hurt them. I really believe that God could be saying the same thing. This hurts me more than it hurts you, but I need you to do this, have this experience, so you'll turn to me. Now, God knows everything, so in one sense that's not true, but I, I really do think that God feels the pain when we have to be disciplined. Because he's looking at it and go, this could have been so much simpler if you had just obeyed. If you had just confessed your sin, this would have been so much simpler. We wouldn't have had to put you through all of this. And David makes his agreement with him. And time is up, and we're going to stop here <laughs> before we get down to the David catching up with the people. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just think, thank you for today. Lord, help us to learn to encourage ourselves in you. Help us to be strong. Help us to walk in the spirit more often than we walk in the flesh. Guide us, keep us, and teach us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.